Welcome to another podcast brought to you by the International Arbitration Group of Freshfields Brockhaus Deringer. I'm Samantha Tan, a lawyer in Freshfields Singapore office and part of the International Arbitration Group. This podcast episode is the first in a series we're bringing to you on the economics of an arbitration. For today's episode, we have two special guests. They are Sanghoon Han and Semi Kim from the Korean law firm Lee & Co. Sanghoon and Semi, together with the head of Freshfield's International Arbitration Group in Asia, Nicholas Lingard, will be answering some tough questions I have for them today on what it costs to run an arbitration. We will talk about where the money pits can be. We will also talk about how users of arbitration, like our listeners, can control the amount they might have to spend in an arbitration. Now, this is about money and about arbitration, so the four of us could probably talk all day and then some. To spare you from a 24-hour recording, we will save some meaty stuff for subsequent episodes. This first episode will cover three aspects. We will start with an introduction into our perspectives. I will invite my colleagues to explain what they do and how they see the economics of an arbitration. We will then do two things. We will zoom in to the beginnings of an arbitration and identify the costs you might incur at that stage. In that discussion, I will ask my colleagues to identify some self-help measures, measures by which our listeners might try to control the costs you incur in using arbitration. Thank you all for tuning in. Let's go to introductions. Nick, Sami, Sanghoon, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello, hello, Sam. Hello. Hi, Sam. So you've heard my introduction. Now, you're all very well-known arbitration lawyers, but our listeners might be interested to understand the experience and perspectives you'd each bring to the observations you make today. So I'd like to start by asking each of you to tell our listeners about your arbitration practice and how each of you sees the economics of an arbitration. Can I invite Nick to start, please? Sure. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. Uh, my uh, arbitration practice, based in Singapore, uh, has three principal parts, and then I'll, I'll add a fourth that sort of wraps around it and adds um, an additional perspective. Uh, on the core arbitration side, a mix of investor-state cases for both investors and states, including uh, collaboration with our friends from Lee & Co in that connection. Uh, commercial arbitration, a whole range of commercial cases, distributorship, post-M&A, joint venture disputes, uh, and some construction arbitration, major projects disputes. Uh, and then the fourth uh, wrapper, is, uh, uh, as I described it, is management of litigation, perhaps in uh, jurisdictions where I don't and we don't practice law, but our clients come to us for strategic management, including, frankly, looking at the economics uh, of complex litigation in tricky jurisdictions. I think the second part of your question, Sam, was uh, in the context of that practice, how do I look at the economics of an arbitration? And really, the only uh, simple point I'll make at this stage is I think the economics of any arbitration, like any litigation, are personal to its participants. A, a respondent will necessarily have a different perspective on the economics of the case than will a claimant. 
a claimant whose principal objective is vindication of a principle, a point of principle, will have a different perspective than one whose principal objective is recovery of a significant sum of damages. And it's incumbent on us as counsel to understand those personal economics, uh, both uh, to manage the costs of the arbitration for our clients, but uh, perhaps more importantly, certainly equally importantly, to advocate our client's case in line with its personal perception of the economics of that case. Thank you for that introduction, Nick. In case you're all wondering, yes, Nick is my boss. So I turn now to... Sanghun to introduce his perspectives on this topic. Hello, uh, thank you, Sam. Uh, it's really good to speak with Freshbird lawyers. Uh, my name is Sanghun Han, and I'm a partner at Dienko's international arbitration team. My main practice includes various kinds of commercial arbitration, such as product liability, IP, and sales agreement-related disputes. And also, we represent major Korean construction companies in disputes involving big construction projects. Also, Korea is one of the world's largest nuclear power producers, and we help the nuclear power plant operators in various disputes. Finally, we are most experienced investor state arbitration team in Korea, and we represent the Korean government in many cases. And one of them, uh, we represent the Korean government with the Freshbird team. Uh, secondly, how do I see economic perspective in arbitration? I'm really conscious and I'm really interested in seeing how the Korean clients prefer certain types of fee uh, structures. For example, there used to be only uh, you know, time charge basis fee structure, but now uh, we have fee cap basis very common. And also now we kind of progress in adopting like a bespoke or like a tailor-made style fee structure as per requested by the client. So I think this is very interesting progress and the dynamics happening in Korea in terms of economic perspective. Thank you. Very interesting, Sanghoon. And we've known each other for a long time. We've been working together for a few years, haven't we? So last but not least, I turn to Semi. Hi, Semi. Hi, Sam. Um, thank you for inviting us today, Sam. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Sami Kim, a partner at Lee & Co's international arbitration team working with Sanghoon. Um, I represent clients mostly in commercial arbitration cases covering various industry sectors such as um, energy and natural resources, life science, um, M&A, IT, trade and construction. Um, I also represent clients in uh, enforcement or set-aside proceedings of arbitral awards in Korean courts and other foreign courts. To answer your question about how I see an economics of arbitration, my first reaction would be um, it's complex. Um, it, it would include many aspects of arbitration. Just to add a little bit to what Nick and Sangun just said, it could be about the cost of arbitration itself, as we will discuss today, or it could be whether um, arbitration is more economically beneficial or efficient to the clients compared to litigation, or it could also be the parties you know, could consider the economics of different arbitral institutions when selecting an arbitral institution because each rule provides for different fee scales. I guess uh, there's lots to be said about uh, economics of arbitration. Yeah, I would just keep it short here. Thanks, Amy. I think what you said about the benefits to clients is very interesting. And one of the angles I'd like us to explore as we discuss today 
is comparing the upside to a client in the relief they want to recover in a claim uh, and the costs that they have to spend in pursuing that result. I think that's quite a critical comparison angle for clients as they consider the costs of their arbitration proceedings. So I have a question now for Sanghun. Sanghun, could you share with us some feedback you may have received from clients about how much they tend to pay for arbitration? Uh, well, thank you so much, Sam. Uh, there is no kind of specific or fixed amount that Korean clients uh, you know, tend to pay or willing to pay in an arbitration case. But I think most Korean clients perceive arbitration expensive. It is not because actually arbitration in Korea is more expensive than litigation in Korea or arbitration elsewhere. But because clients' perception is that arbitration is expensive because it inevitably involves English translation and submission in English language. But I can say uh, they would not think spending uh, uh, less than 10% of the claim, uh, claim amount is uh, expensive for making claims for themselves. I think they uh, are kind of willing to pay like up to 10% of the claim amount in Korea. That's kind of general perception I have from the Korean client that I've worked with so far. Mm. That's an interesting data point. So 10% as the amount you spend to try to recover relief in arbitration. Um, I turn to Nick. Is there anything you would add to what Sanghun just told us? Look, I share the perception that our clients think and often rightly think arbitration is expensive. But I want to offer just one data point, and that is that the most recent study, and all of these studies are based on wildly incomplete data, but they're still helpful in framing expectations and understandings. The most recent study from the investor state arbitration context shows over time uh, that the cost of investor state arbitration has gone down. Uh, and so I offer that at the outset to show that the picture is not all a grim one, uh, that there is scope for efficiency and there is scope for cost to go down. As I say, limitations on the data uh, and the data have historically been skewed by some very big cases. Uh, but let's not lose sight of what the data do show us. It is possible uh, for costs to go down, for costs to be managed efficiently uh, uh, and effectively. That's very optimistic, Nick, and I share your hope on behalf of our listeners. Let's think about how we break down what it costs to run an arbitration. And for this question, I invite Sami to tell us, what goes into the payments that our listeners keep having to make in the course of an arbitration? Um, well, generally in arbitration, there are four types of costs. First, legal fees paid to the lawyers, of course. Administrative fees paid to the arbitral institutions, such as the ICC, SEAC, HKIAC, or KCAB, and the arbitrator's fees. There will also be experts' fees if you hire industry expert or um, quantum experts during the arbitration. And disbursements, such as translation fees or printing costs, and costs generated by having a hearing. The hearing expenses would include hotel charges, airfare, interpreter fees if you have interpretation, uh, and fees for transcribers to record down what is said at the hearing. That sounds like a lot. How are we <laughs> going to start answering the question of where we can save money and how? 
still on you, Sammy. Yeah, well, I, I think the most efficient way to discuss this would be to break down an arbitration into stages, and then we can see what lawyers and clients can do to manage costs at each stage. I think we can start from the very beginning, even before any dispute arises. Let's say the client is negotiating the terms in the deal documents. At this stage, the parties will negotiate over whether to include an arbitration clause in the contract and if so, how to draft one. And then, of course, uh, we can look into the different phases in the actual arbitral proceedings, which will follow. Thank you, Sami. That's very interesting. When I think of an arbitration, I think of the time when somebody has started a claim either in SIEC or ICC or something like that. But you're saying that we can start talking about saving costs even at the time of the deal. I'd like to explore that. Uh, and let me ask Nick this question then. How is it that we can start saving money even at the deal-making stage? Thanks, Sam. Well, look, the short point is to get the arbitration clause right. Uh, I'm sure the corporate lawyers listing are sick of being told that by us litigators, but it is ever so important. It frames how the dispute will be resolved. It also, of course, uh, frames the enforceability of the contract. But for our purposes today, getting the arbitration clause right is an opportunity efficiently to resolve disputes when they arise to save money. How to do that? Well, generally speaking, it seems to me simple is best. And you can't go too far wrong adopting the standard model clause published by almost all arbitral institutions, the ICC, SEAC, KCAB, HKISE, whatever have you, on their websites. That is a good starting place. In most deals, it will also be a good ending place. You don't need to go terribly far beyond that. You can, of course, add bells and whistles to that arbitration clause uh, to suit the specific context. For example, if there are multiple parties, uh, it may be appropriate to amend. Or if there are strongly held views uh, among the parties to the transaction about what shape the arbitration should take, amendments can be made. But they need to be made bearing in mind they will almost certainly complicate and almost certainly make more expensive the resulting arbitration proceedings. Many years ago, we were involved uh, in a case with a US nexus uh, where the parties had taken a AAA, uh, ICDR, otherwise standard arbitration clause, but added to it, uh, there shall be available full US style depositions uh, for both sides, with the result that there were full US style depositions for both sides. Now, that may have met their commercial objective there, but it certainly wasn't cheap and it certainly wasn't efficient. It made the process much more expensive. Now, it's an extreme example, but the basic message is uh, the more bells and whistles added to an arbitration clause, uh, the more expensive the resulting arbitration is likely to be. Hmm. Nick, as I was listening to you, I was thinking that if an arbitration clause were to include more specificity as to the procedure that the arbitration will go down. Instinctively, that struck me as something that could expedite or make an arbitration smoother in terms of how it might proceed. What do you think about doing that? I think, Sam, that can be a good idea, but it has to be done well. 
And I think us litigators are skeptical about how much energy deal makers want to invest in a dispute resolution clause, even with an eye on efficiency at the moment of doing the deal. And therefore, I think there is a risk that it get done quickly and not especially well. And if there is an appetite to really focus on it, I think better to do without. Most institutional rules can deal with most procedural questions. Most competent tribunals can deal with most procedural questions. Uh, and so the specificity that you're referring to can add certainty, but it can also add uncertainty if not done well. Uh, how are those rules drafted by the parties into their contract to be interpreted? If you say no document discovery uh, is one we get asked about a lot. Well, are there exceptions to that? What if it's a fraud claim? How do you build a fraud claim but with document discovery? Having a fight over those exceptions can be a very expensive fight. You might have been better uh, not to have specified no document discovery in the first place, for example. Right. Okay. I think one takeaway that struck me from your response, Nick, is that the institutional rules should already provide sufficient specificity for uh, parties to understand the procedure for any arbitration that ensues. Let's now go to that stage Sami, is that what comes next after we look at the deal-making stage as to how you might save money? Well, before we go into the actual arbitral uh, proceeding, there's usually a period of time after dispute arises and before arbitration is commenced. So during this pre-arbitration period, um, the parties can negotiate to settle the dispute um, or pursue mediation before commencing arbitration. So we, we can, I think we can talk about this pre-arbitration period first. Okay, I may have jumped ahead in time. <laughs> so let me ask Sanghoon this question then. In this pre-arbitration stage where parties are, say, negotiating and maybe hoping that they don't have to start arbitration proceedings, what can parties do to control costs? Thank you so much, Sam. So one tip I can have right now in my mind is that it is different when you advise claimant side or respondent side. So for example, uh, depending on whether we represent the claimants and respondent, how we can save cost and how we use the cost more efficiently can be different. Uh, for example, when we represent claimant side, we usually recommend the client to do merits review before filing the arbitration because knowing what strengths well, what weakness we have in our claim can save further costs down the road. On the other hand, in case representing respondents, we usually recommend not spend time and money for detailed and thorough merits review preemptively, but wait until the arbitration is filed until we can understand the details about the claim. This is mainly because we cannot defend unless and until we know what the claimant's claim is. I think this is a kind of tip that uh, experienced counsel can provide to their client, depending on whether the clients uh, will be claimant side or respondent side. Thank you, Sanghun. I'm wondering if it might save money for even a respondent to try to deal with the dispute either through negotiation or mediation before someone commences arbitration proceedings formally. What do you think about that kind of method? Well, like you said, I mean, as you uh, correctly pointed out, it is 
are very common nowadays that the parties reach out to uh, settlements before or after the arbitration is filed. Of course, I think merit review is necessary even for respondent side to gauge the strengths and weakness in their defense. But what I was saying was that we, after we went through that stages, after we get into real kind of disputes where uh, the parties uh, had to go all the way to the uh, end and get the uh, awards. And in the case, in the case where it is better to wait until the detailed, until we know the detailed claim uh, by the uh, uh, arbitration request or the, uh, their statement of the claim, and then we can also gauge the possibility of uh, settlement and the, how we can set out, how we can figure out our defense in the arbitration. I think you really uh, pointed out a good point, but I think uh, even for the purpose of the settlement uh, and negotiation, it is kind of good to know what claimant's claim has in, in their claim. That's a good point. I think some of the sticking points we see in negotiations and mediation can be a lack of understanding of each side's claims. So it's sometimes more beneficial to engage in those discussions after detailed pleadings have gone in. Now I think, and Sami will correct me if I'm wrong, we go on to the actual arbitral proceedings. Is that right? Yes, now we go into the actual arbitral proceeding and I would like to divide this into three stages. First, once arbitration commences, parties are required to appoint arbitrators and discuss procedural issues such as the um, number of written submissions, language, procedural timetable, by which I mean when the deadlines are and how much time each side gets to prepare its submissions. And second, Parties will submit written briefs according to the agreed schedule uh, with documentary evidence, witness statements, and expert reports. Parties also will request documents from each other and produce these documents for the purpose of preparing their written briefs and evidence. And next, we will look at the hearing phase. There are lots to say about the hearing, but we'll keep it short for the next episode. Yeah, that's right. An arbitration proceeding tends to go on for quite long. Uh, and so we probably can't discuss every aspect of it on today's episode. And maybe we can save some discussion about the hearing stage for a subsequent um, chapter. Let's first talk about the first stage that Sami identified, which is the procedure. Uh, and I turn to Sanghoon for this question. Identifying the procedure, especially where you've got arbitral institutions' rules, that sounds simple enough. Does this stage tend to be expensive for clients? I think sticking to the uh, uh, rules and the regulations or procedures provided by the arbitral institutions, of course, can save a lot of money. So I think we usually advise our clients, unless otherwise there is special situation or uh, circumstances that we need to deviate from those rules. We just we usually recommend you know uh, follow those the uh, uh, rules provided by the arbitration uh, institutions. So, well, at the very first stage of arbitration, at the stage of appointing uh, arbitrators, following prescribed procedures for arbitrator appointment under the applicable arbitration rules and not deviating from the rules will help save the cost. And also using the standard form procedure order number one provided by the tribunal can reduce cost. 
Well, for example, I have a, a case where opposing party is represented by a counsel who doesn't seem to have that much experience in arbitration. And the parties and the tribunal took very long for finalizing the procedural order number one because the opposing counsel commented on and objected so many clauses in the standard form procedural order number one most of which were not that critical for the party's benefit, what could be dealt with when that issue actually arises. So I think this is a kind of important point at the early stage of arbitration, how the parties can save cost. Mm. That's an interesting point about it depending on your counterparty. Uh, I wonder, Nick, if you share Sanghun's experience or have any other views on the cost aspect at this early stage of proceedings? I do. Um, I, I certainly share his uh, insights. I also think it's an opportunity for those of us who are experienced in arbitration uh, to explore uh, cost-saving innovations. Let me quickly propose two that have been discussed broadly in the arbitration community but aren't all that frequently adopted at the procedural order number one stage. One is uh, the so-called Kaplan opening, uh, which is scheduling a period, perhaps a day, perhaps shorter, perhaps even two days, uh, before the substantive merits hearing for the parties to open their cases for the tribunal. So that by the time you get to the evidentiary hearing, you're as efficient as can be, with the result that the evidentiary hearing might be shorter than otherwise would be the case, and you have an engaged tribunal that can more quickly, more efficiently, more cheaply uh, make not just the substantive decisions in the case, but also the procedural uh, issues that arise as the case progresses. The second is a so-called read retreat, which is scheduling for uh, deliberation of the tribunal, both before and after the hearing, named after our former Freshfields partner, Lucy Reed, uh, requiring the arbitrators to get in their diary from the very beginning of the case, time to sit together and make a decision. Time when scheduled early that should result in an award sooner and therefore result in uh, cost savings for participants in the case. Two possible procedural innovations, we'd suggest they be considered right early on in the life of a case at this procedural order number one stage. Thank you, Nick. That's super interesting, those lesser known procedural devices. Let's take stock now. We've discussed the very beginnings of an arbitral proceeding, where you set the procedure for the arbitration. We've also discussed steps preceding that, negotiations or mediations before the dispute commences formally, as well as things you can do even at the deal-making stage. I'd like to take a step back now to round up before we conclude this episode. We've discussed lots of tools to create efficiency in the conduct of arbitral proceedings, and we will discuss more in subsequent episodes. But once proceedings start, clients may feel that they are at the mercy of their lawyers, who have then taken over conduct of the proceedings. I'll ask Nick this question. What self-help measures can a client take at this stage? Well, look, I think there's lots, Sam. The case is not the lawyer's case, it's the client's case. I think to go back to where I began in the answer to your first question, the economics of an arbitration uh, as for a litigation are personal to its, its participants. So uh, it is incumbent on clients to explain their motivations to counsel and for us as counsel to understand them. There's then some pretty practical mechanisms to really get at your question that I think we really ought to have in place in every case. 
uh, clients ought to know how much we're spending, how much this is costing them. We can provide that data on a real-time basis. We can do it weekly, we can do it bi-weekly, we can do it daily if a client needs it. Uh, and so transparency is one tool that I think we can offer. And we can cut that data in ways that best meet the client's objectives and their internal reporting requirements. So they really ought to know how much the case is costing. There are regulatory constraints that limit where we can do this. It is not possible for us uh, in Singapore, for example, but in other parts of the world, discussing risk sharing mechanisms can be a very fruitful conversation because it gets at exactly what the client wants to achieve and allows counsel and client to align uh, incentives to achieve that objective. And we're seeing more and more and more of that. And I think very productive discussions there. If I might end with a cliche, always dangerous, I know, but let me end with this cliche. Um, there's nothing more expensive than a bad lawyer who loses the case for you. But you don't have to go there. You can get good lawyers with efficient, effective mechanisms, the sorts of tools we've started to discuss here. I think expensive lawyers, but who will work effectively and efficiently with some of the mechanisms uh, we've, we've been discussing today, Sam. Thanks, Nick, for the very practical advice. I'm conscious that we've covered a lot of ground today, but we've really only reached the start of arbitral proceedings. We still have the stages of document production, witness and expert evidence and hearings to cover. So lots to talk about in a subsequent episode. I'll ask our listeners to please stay tuned for our next episode. And for now, thank you to you all for tuning in and to our guests. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.